Hello, and welcome to episode five of March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness. My co-host and brother, Brendan, cannot join us today. He's playing some basketball and he gets ball his life, so he's chosen basketball over the March of History podcast, but we won't hold that against him. So today, we're going to continue the story of Julius Caesar and look at some different aspects of him that we haven't talked about yet and ones that I think you'll find pretty interesting and introduce some new characters, including what I would say is Julius Caesar's chief nemesis. If he is this unstoppable force of charismatic talent and hard work that never relents and constantly drives his enemies to exhaustion, and this other man, Marcus Portius Cato, otherwise known simply as Cato, is the immovable object to Caesar's unstoppable force. Cato is the antithesis of Caesar in every single way. While Caesar is bright and flashy, while Caesar sleeps around with with many women, while Caesar dresses fancy and, and borrows money like crazy, Cato is austere. Cato is against such lavish displays. But it's not so simple as that either. Because even though Caesar may appear to be part of the cool and and, and party set, the group that hangs out all hours of the night and is chic and fashionable, and Cato's the exact opposite, Cato's prone to a lot of drinking, and Cato's been accused of being a drunk, and Caesar abstains from all alcohol, or almost all alcohol, so you have this kind of bizarre thing where Cato is considered to be the more strict and conservative one in his personal habits and Caesar, the more flamboyant and wild one, the one who spends money like crazy and, you know, is a profligate spender. But when it comes to alcohol, they're kind of the exact opposite. So I just thought that that was very interesting, but I want to read a passage about Cato from Tom Holland's book, Rubicon. Again, my favorite And he really describes not just Cato, but what Cato stood for at this point in the Republic and why he was such a big deal, even before he was of age to be a big deal. You know, the the Roman Republic was all about seniority and and being, you know, the age to to attain a certain uh, political rank. And Cato stood out long before he was, it was his turn to, to speak out. So Tom Holland says, well, first he talks about the party set. He goes to the party set, the mark of a good night out and the city's cutting edge craze was become ecstatically drunk. And then to the accompaniment of shout of quote shouts and screams, the whooping of girls and deafening music and quote to strip naked and dance wildly on tables. So that's kind of what's happening with the younger chic party set in Rome And this is the opposite of the traditional austere Roman values. And there's many Romans saying that this is the influence of the East, that yes, Rome conquered an empire in the East, but then the East's habits and their, as they say, quote, effeminacy was brought into Rome and it's like a cancer in Rome. It's infecting the minds of their young people. You know, the same kind of things that, 
people of all generations say about their nation that, you know, the young people have no morals today. They don't make them like they used to, that kind of thing. But then along comes Cato, and he is in lockstep with everything that the old traditional conservative values would have held. So Tom Holland goes on to say about Cato, quote, Roman politicians had always been divided more by style than by issues of policy. The increasing extravagance of Rome's party scenes served to polarize them even further. Clearly, it was excruciating embarrassment for traditionalists that so many of their standard bearers had themselves succumbed to the temptations of luxury. Men such as Lucullus and Hortensius were ill-placed to wag the finger at anyone. And then these are guys who are the conservatives of Rome. And again, do not confuse them with conservatives in the U.S. or today. The conservatives in Rome were called the optimates or the bony. Basically, it meant the good men. And these guys, the Colus and Hortentius, are among the top tier of these bony or optimates. And yet they themselves are living these lavish lifestyles. So it's kind of tough for them to say that the Populares Party, which is what Caesar's part of, and it's not an official party. It's more of, like they said, identity politics of this chic uh, set. It's kind of hard for him to tell them not to behave that way when he himself is behaving in wild ways. They talk about uh, them having like pet fish and loving their pet fish. I think Lucullus cries when his favorite pet fish dies in his saltwater pond. And it's this amazing saltwater pond that they dug a tunnel all the way to the sea from this pond so that it would change with the tides, I believe. It was some engineering marvel, but all for this guy's fish, which the Roman traditionalists were like, this is absurd. And he's supposed to be one of one of our ranks and he switched to this great warrior, and here he is crying over a, a dead pet fish that he loved. <laughs> so even the traditionalists are, are watching their ranks rot from within is what I'm getting at. So he says that Lucullus and Hortensius were ill-placed to wag the finger at anyone. Even so, the ancient frugalities of the Republic still endured. Indeed, for a new generation of senators, the backdrop of modest excess made them appear more, not less inspiring. Even as it wallowed in gold, the Senate remained an instinctively conservative body, reluctant to glimpse a true reflection of itself, preferring to imagine itself a model of rectitude still. Politicians able to convince their fellow senators that this was more than just a fantasy might accrue considerable prestige. Sternness and austerity continue to play well. So you have this kind of weird paradox where... Everybody holds in some way austerity and the sternness to be a virtue, yet very few people are actually following that model, you know? And then along comes Cato, and he goes on to say, quote, It is hard to otherwise explain the remarkable authority of a man who in the mid-60s B.C. had not or had only just turned 30 and held no no office higher than the quaestorship, which is the lowest of the offices. At an age when most senators would sit in respectful silence to listen to their seniors, Marcus Portius Cato had a voice that boomed out across the Senate floor. Rough and unadorned, it appeared to sound directly from the rugged, virtuous stays of the earliest republic. As an officer, Cato had, quote, shared in everything he ordered his men to do. He wore what they wore, ate what they ate, marched as they marched, end quote. As a civilian, he made a fashion out of despising fashion. 
wearing black because the party said all sported purple, walking everywhere, whether in blazing sunshine or icy rain, despising every form of luxury, sometimes not even bothering to put on his shoes. If there was more than a hint of affectation about this, then it was also the expression of a profoundly held moral purpose, an incorruptibility and inner strength that the Romans still longed to identify with themselves, but had rather assumed were confined to the history books. To Cato, however, the inheritance of the past was something infinitely sacred. Duty and service to his fellow citizens were all. Only after he had fully studied the responsibilities of the quaestorship had he been prepared to put himself up for election. Once in office, such was his probity and diligence that it was said that he, quote, made the quaestorship as worthy of honor as a consulship, end quote. Plagued by a sense of its own corruption as it was, the Senate was not yet so degenerate that it could fail to be impressed by such a man, end quote. So that's who Cato is, and he is the arch enemy of Caesar. And at this point, when they're younger, you know, they, they, I'm sure, know of each other, but they haven't quite become enemies yet. They will come to despise each other, absolutely despise each other, a level of hatred that in Caesar is rare because Caesar tries to make friends of everybody, even the people that betray him again and again and again. And yet he hates Cato because Cato at times can be incredibly petty towards Caesar and go out of his way to not just do things that protect the Republic from what he sees as Caesar's, you know, radical reforms, but things that just jab Caesar in the eye personally. So Tom Holland goes on to say, and I'm not going to read for the whole episode, so don't worry, but he goes on to say, quote, to the grandees of the previous generation in particular, Cato served as an inspiration. They were quick to see in him the future of the Republic. Lucullus, for instance, eager to hand on his torch to a successor, chose to celebrate his divorce by marrying Cato's half-sister. His new bride was, was an improvement on the old one, only in the sense that her affairs were not incestuous. But the unfortunate Lucullus, once again saddled with a party girl for her wife, forborn for years to divorce her out of respect for Cato. This did not mean that Cato himself was prepared to extend any special favors to his brother-in-law. Far from it. If he believed that the good of the Republic was at stake, he would prosecute Lucullus's friends and indeed take on anyone who he believed required a lesson in virtue. On occasions, he even went so far as to lecture Catullus, and Catullus is like the head of the Optimate Party. So he's even lecturing Catullus and continues on. Cato was not prepared to take part in the intrigues that everyone else took for granted, a display of inflexibility that would often baffle and infuriate his allies. Cicero, who we've already introduced, Cicero, who admired Cato deeply, could nevertheless bitch, quote, he addressed the Senate as though he were living in Plato's Republic rather than the shithole of Romulus. <laughs> I always think that's a great line. Let me read that one again. Cicero says, quote, he addresses the Senate as though he were living in Plato's Republic rather than the shithole of Romulus. And Romulus is, is the mythical founder of Rome. And he goes on, quote, such criticism seriously underestimated Cato's political acumen. Indeed, in many ways, his strategy was the polar opposite of Cicero's, who had made an entire career out of testing the limits of compromise. Cato moved to the rhythms of no one's principles but his own. Drawing his strength from the most austere traditions of the Republic, he fashioned himself into a living reproach to the frivolities of his age. 
It was a deliberate tactic on Cato's part to make his enemies, in comparison to his own imposing example, appear all the more vicious and effeminate. Chasing after women and staying out drunk were not expressions of machismo to the Romans. The very opposite, in fact. Indulgence threatened potency. Gladiators in the week before a fight might need to have their foreskins fitted with the metal bolts to infibulate them, but citizens were supposed to rely on self-control. To surrender to sensuality it was to cease to be a man, just as domineering women such as Claudia might be portrayed as vampires sapping the appetites of those who succumbed to their charms, so gilded rakes like Claudius were savaged as creatures less than women. With unwearying relish, the same charge was repeated time and again. And don't worry about Claudia and Claudius will come in later in the story, and they are main characters, and they are fascinating characters. Claudius especially may be the most single interesting person I've ever read about in my life, uh, and we'll get to him probably not in this episode, but later on. But he's part of that party set. So that's who Cato is, and and he's a shrewd politician in some ways, but as we go through the story, I find that Cato again and again uses the Constitution or, or the Roman values and traditions and norms as a shield and tries to stop people from doing what they can literally do by throwing traditions in front of them, if that makes sense. So, for example, if you had a general in control of an army in Maryland, USA, and the president orders him to stand down his troops, that general can you know, is supposed to and in, in has to stand down and, and relinquish control of his troops. Or he can say, I have an army with me like Sola did, and D.C. is right there, like Sola thought about Rome, and march on it. Now, Cato would put people in positions. He would try to corner them with traditions and complex intricacies of the Constitution, like the most ridiculous ones, and expect them to follow it to try to prove a point that the Constitution and the Roman traditions were above all, and almost dare the person to break these traditions to make them look bad. Well, eventually, if you do that enough, somebody's going to say, I don't care, and they're just going to break all the traditions, and it's going to backfire and blow up in your face, and it's not going to make the republic stronger. It's going to make it weaker. And that may sound confusing now, but we're going to go through example on example of him doing this, especially to Julius Caesar, who loves to break rules, and Cato will, will intentionally force Caesar to break more rules than he would otherwise have to break just to make him look worse. But, I mean, what it really does is it degrades the sanctity of the republic by by forcing somebody to break so many rules when you didn't have to force them to do that. But that's Cato. He, like I said, becomes Caesar's chief nemesis. And I want to move on from Cato for a little bit, though, to talk about Caesar and his relationship with uh, the women in his life. I haven't talked much about women in Rome up until this point, not because it's a subject I'm uninterested in, but simply because, unfortunately, like much of history and especially antiquity history, History is written by men for men, and there's not as much mention of women, but make no mistake, they have a strong influence on the politics of the day and what happens in the city, but much of it's behind the scenes and much of it's unwritten about. So I want to talk about women's roles in society in Rome and Caesar's relationships to the women in his life. 
So Caesar's wife was Cornelia at this point. This was the girl that he had married when I think he was 16 and she was even younger than that. And the dictator Sola ordered them to divorce and Caesar said no. Well, eventually they had a daughter, Julia, and that would be Caesar's only legitimate child his entire life. So he, ne- he never had a male heir, uh, which would be what the Romans would be looking for, uh, except for maybe later in his life with Cleopatra, but uh, the Romans would not consider that legitimate. So he seems to have remained loyal to his wife in the political sense, and he seems to have deeply loved his daughter, Julia, but he was not loyal to her in the sense of not being promiscuous elsewhere. And this was not exclusive to Caesar. It was almost taken for granted that in this time during the Republic that men would have sexual affairs with slaves and women of lower status left and right, and that was perfectly fine, but women were expected to be loyal and never have sex outside of with their husband, and in that way, preserve the certainty that the heir to the family fortune and heir to the family, because these were a lot of aristocratic families, that the heir to the family was indeed an actual heir to the family and not the son of the cook. Or at least that was the reasoning that they gave for their traditions of the women having to be so strict and the men, you know, it was it was just taken for granted that they would have affairs and it was almost considered not a big deal. I mean, I'm sure a lot of women didn't like it, but it was so institutionalized and so normalized that it would, it would have been a tough thing to fight. But that's not to say that every single person did. Maybe Cicero seems, again, he seems like more of a modern person in that he didn't seem to have, you know, the type of affairs that you hear about other senators having. But even him, I mean, like they, it's not like anybody would write about him having an affair with a slave because it would be thought as no big deal. And slaves were considered property of the owners. You know, there was no consent for them to say yes or no to sex. They were just told to have sex. But continuing on, Caesar had an affair with a woman who was really the true love of his life. Her name is Servilia. And Servilia is described as being extremely intelligent, deeply interested in politics. In Adrian Goldworthy's book, he describes Servilia as attractive, intelligent, well-educated, sophisticated, and ambitious. And women in Rome, though they lack any semblance of freedom in comparison to today's women in Western societies for antiquity and for the world in which they lived in, Roman women had a remarkable level of freedom in comparison to some other cultures that were not so far away and and of the same time period. And I'm going to give you some examples of those in a minute, but sticking with Servilia. So Suetonius tells us that Caesar, quote, loved her before all others, talking about Servilia. And Servilia's first husband had been Marcus Junius Brutus, but he had supported Lepidus's coup. That's the one that Caesar refused to join when he returned to Rome. And so he had been executed when he joined that plot and and it failed. And then she gave birth to a son. That son's name was Brutus. Yes, that Brutus. So not only is Servilia 
Caesar's longtime lover, and they definitely seem to have had some kind of love for each other. She is the mother of Brutus, the, in a way, leader of the conspiracy that would one day assassinate Caesar. And Brutus would be among those that stab Caesar to death at the foot of a statue of Pompey. And Caesar, for much of or for enti- the entirety of Brutus's life, thought of Brutus as a son. And even contemporaries spread rumors that Brutus actually was Caesar's son. Now, if you look back at the timeline, pe- people think that's highly unlikely because Caesar would have had to have been 14 when Brutus was, or 13 when Brutus was conceived, or 14. Not impossible, but it seems unlikely. I guess Servilia is a little bit older than, uh, than Caesar is. But Caesar certainly thought of him as a son and loved him as a son. But the irony doesn't end there, because Servilia is the half-sister of Cato. And in a society like ancient Rome, obsessed with family and family ties, and the head of the household would be, you know, the head male of the household would be the pater familius, and he held the strictest control over his family, and in the most traditional ways, he held the authority of life and death over the members of his family. Now, in practice, people would say things like, you know, I I would no sooner kill my son than, you know, chop off my own arm. You know, it just doesn't make any sense. But they traditionally did have the ability to, to do that. And so Cato, you know, she fell under kind of Cato's control, you might say, but clearly Cato could not control her because she was having an affair with Cato's greatest enemy and most despised person, Julius Caesar, for most of her life, and Cato could not stop her, and I'm sure that infuriated Cato to no end. Now, Adrian Goldworthy goes on to say that, quote, Caesar was very fond of Brutus, an affection which remained even after the, later, even after the latter had fought against him in the Civil War, and that's, that happened in the future, <laughs> This encouraged persistent rumors that he was, in fact, Brutus's father. Plutarch, who's a a great Greek historian of Roman times, Plutarch even suggests that Caesar himself believed this. Given that he would only have been 15 when Brutus was born, this must surely be a myth. But the existence of these tales does suggest that the liaison between Caesar and Servilia began at an early date. And it continued in spite of the fact that Servilia eventually remarried. And it seems that Servilia had no other affairs that we know of, at least, outside of Caesar. So she remained faithful to her husband with the exception of Julius Caesar. Now, though she may, you know, it's impossible to know for sure, but she may have remained faithful to her lover, Julius Caesar. I mean, while she was also married, so I don't know if you exactly call that faithful, but Caesar was not held by the same standard, and Caesar had affairs on an absurd level and absurd numbers. Even during this time where it's considered the party set and the chic set and everybody's partying and out late and it's, you know, cool and, and, you know, dangerous to have affairs, Caesar stands out among them all as something different. So Goldsworthy says, quote, the sheer scale of his activity stood out in Roman society, which at this time did not lack adulterers or rakes. 
But the thing is, Caesar didn't just have affairs with with slaves and with women of, of lower station or with unmarried women. He, the unusual step that he took was that he would have affairs with married aristocratic women, which was a dangerous game to play because you would obviously cuckold and infuriate the aristocratic husband of, you know, whoever you were having the affair with and therefore create a political enemy. So it seems that in these affairs, there was as much a intention to prove a point of power as it was anything sexual. Caesar wanted to show these political opponents or just other people in politics that he was dominant over them and could even take their wife if he wanted to. So Goldsworthy says, The risks involved may have added to the thrill. It is even possible to see Caesar's womanizing as an extension of political competition, sleeping with other senators' wives to prove that he was the better man in the bedroom as well as the forum. Perhaps there was even a conscious desire to smother the stories about his submission to Nicomedes by gaining notoriety for predatory and blatantly heterosexual adventures. Yet none of these reasons seem enough to explain why it was primarily with aristocratic women that Caesar sought satisfaction. That such lovers were almost invariably married was almost inevitable, since the daughters of senatorial families played such an important role in creating and strengthening political bonds. Girls were married young, and those who were divorced or widowed while young or middle-aged would tend to be swiftly placed into a new match. Only women of mature years who had survived or who had surviving children were normally permitted to live on as widows without remarrying. Caesar's mother Aurelia followed this path, as did Servilia after the death of her second husband. But in most respects, there simply was no group of single aristocratic women at Rome amongst whom Caesar might seek lovers. However, the very nature of Roman public life, where senators held a series of posts, many of which required them to serve overseas for years on end, did mean that married women were left on their own for long periods of time which I would say would be probably one of the reasons that led to this relative freedom in Rome, the fact that their husbands were often gone for years away on, on business of the state. So, you know, they didn't have somebody in their household controlling them and telling them what to do all the time. They did have some kind of freedom. Now, he goes on to say that aristocratic women enjoyed considerable freedom in first century BC Rome. Many had considerable means independent of their husbands, including the dowry they had brought at the time of marriage, which was always supposed to remain separate from, although complementary to, the income of the household. As we have seen by this era, girls were educated in the same way as their brothers, at least in the academic sense and during the early years. Therefore, they learned to be bilingual in both Latin and Greek and gained a deep appreciation of literature and culture. Unlike their male siblings, girls had rarely had any opportunity to travel abroad to further their education by studying in one of the great centers of Greek learning. Since many philosophers and teachers visiting Rome for long periods, this was only in part a disadvantage, and there were schools teaching a whole range of cultural accomplishments. Sal's description of one senator's wife is illuminating, and this is very interesting. So he says, quote, Amongst these was Sopronia, 
who had often committed many outrages of masculine audacity. This woman was well blessed by fortune in her birth and physical beauty, as well as her husband and children. Well read in Greek and Latin literature, she played the lyre, danced more artfully than any honest woman should, and had many other gifts which fostered a luxurious life. Yet there was never anything she prized so little as her honor and chastity. It was, it was hard to say whether she was less free with her money or her virtue. Her lusts were so fierce that she more often pursued men than was pursued by them. She had often broken her word, failed to pay her debts, been party to murder. Her lack of money but addiction to luxury set her on a wild course. Even so, she was a remarkable woman, able to write poetry, crack a joke, converse modestly, tenderly, or wantonly. All in all, she had great gifts and a good many charms. So it's very interesting the way he describes her. You know, he starts out saying that she had all these abilities, ability to read. She's by, I think she says, yeah, she can read Greek and Latin and write Greek and Latin literature. She plays a lyre. She dances well. And most of these things outside the dancing are said in complimentary tones. Now, he goes on to say all these bad things about her, but the fact that that would even be considered to be a good thing in women, so that just goes to show that women did have a better quality of life, if not up to today's standards, obviously, in ancient Rome. Now, Plutarch writes of another aristocratic woman who Adrian Goldsworthy says uh, she was widowed at a young age and then remarried. Plutarch says, quote, even apart from her beauty, the young woman had plenty of attractive qualities in that she was well-read, a good player of the lyre, skilled in geometry, and capable of profiting from the philosophical lectures she regularly attended. She also combined these qualities with a character that was free from the unpleasant curiosity which these intellectual interests tend to inflict on young women. So again, very complimentary of all of these abilities that she has, interest in philosophy, and she, she's allowed to attend philosophy lectures often. That's crazy for those times. Obviously all said in a very condescending manner of a man of the day that, you know, these unpleasant or she was free from the unpleasant curiosity which these intellectual interests tend to inflict on young women. But yeah, so Goldsworth goes on to say that sophistication, learning, wit, and even some skill in music or dancing were not in themselves seen as bad things in a woman, so long as they were combined with chastity in the sense of remaining loyal to her husband. Yet in Caesar's day, many women did not display this virtue. As a generation, they were better educated than their mothers, and certainly than their grandmothers, but were still expected to concern themselves with little more than running the household. Given... In arranged marriages, while little more than a child, and then perhaps passed on from one husband to the next, as death or changing of political alliances dictated, a woman was fortunate if she found happiness and fulfillment in this way. Unable to vote or seek office, those like Servilia had to direct their deep interest in politics into promoting the careers of male relations. Independently wealthy in a Rome where all the spoils and profits of empire were available for sale— there was a temptation for many women to compete in luxurious living. Some added spice in their lives by taking a lover or lovers. Now, they go on to say, you know, what attracted all these women to Caesar? 
And he says, For the women he loved, there was his charm, which few people were ever able to resist when in his company. He was Caesar, the one who dressed distinctively, setting fashions that many younger men copied, who took such care of his, of his appearance and deportment, and always marked himself out as special. To receive his full attention even for a while was doubtless very flattering, something that the notoriety of his amorous exploits may well have made even more attractive. Whatever its root, his repeated success with so many women makes it clear that he was very good at seduction. The urge to go from one affair to another was in part merely a reflection of the great energy and ambition he showed in all other aspects of his life. It may also be that he was always searching for someone who was enough of his match to keep him interested over a long period. Servilia, so like him in many ways, evidently came closest to his ideal, and that any other Roman woman hence the longevity of their relationship. So that describes a little bit about how women were seen in Rome. I would love to give a fuller picture. Many women weren't written about in Rome, and the ones that were written about were the ones that were probably different than the norm, but I guess it's the case for men too. Now, Caesar had a very strong relationship, though, with his mother and with his Aunt Julia. His Aunt Julia was the one who was married to Marius, the great war hero that had the civil war with Sola, and her son had been killed in that civil war by Sola, uh, his head chopped off, and I think she remained a widow the rest of her life, but Caesar was very devoted to his Aunt Julia, and his mother was notoriously strict in raising Caesar, even among the Roman standards who were known to be strict, you know, at least the aristocrats to their kids. But Caesar was very devoted to his mother and his mother was very devoted to him and his ambitions and his political career. And they had very strong relationships with each other. Goldsworthy has a passage from, I think, Suetonius he says that Suetonius does tell us that Caesar frequently paid very high, even extravagant prices to purchase physically attractive slaves, noting that he was that even he was ashamed of the cost and so had it concealed in his account books. Whether such servants were entirely ornamental or also intended to provide their owner with sexual entertainment is not stated. However, Suetonius does tell us that it was his it was the quote fixed opinion that Caesar's passions were quote unrestrained and extravagant end quote and that he seduced quote many distinguished women. He lists five by name, all of them wives of important senators, but implies that there were others. One of the named women was Tertulla, the wife of Crassus. That blows my mind. He's having affairs with the wife of Crassus, who's most likely his biggest benefactor and paying for his political career. Did Crassus know about this and just not care? I don't know. Did, did he keep it secret from Crassus? It seems somewhat unlikely if, if it made it into the history books. You know, enough people knew to, to write it down. So that blows my mind. And just the, the boldness of that, and it, I mean, it almost seems stupid to, to do that, but... Who knows? Maybe Crassus said I'm okay with it. <laughs> now, during this time, Caesar begins to start his political career. And he goes to be elected for Quaestor. And Quaestor being, you would you couldn't apply to be or run for election as a Quaestor until you were 30 years old, at least. 
And when Caesar reaches that 30-year-old mark, he runs for Quaestor, and the Quaestors handled the treasury. And I believe we're going to stop for here, or stop for now, for today, and cover the beginning of his climb of the political ladder in the next episode. The Romans called this race of climbing the political ladder the Cursus Honorum, or uh, Race of Honor. It was such a crazy, mad scramble for, for political office to gain votes, to shake hands, to make relations with new people and new families and make political marriages and give speeches and, and become known by everybody. And, and the Romans did not have a separation of, oh, this is my job, or at least the aristocrats that you know were involved in the Senate. It was never, this is my job and this is my personal life. No, they were all, it was all one thing. Your, your personal life was your job and your job was your personal life. Who you hung out with for fun mattered for political reasons, uh, and it creates these fascinating situations. And we'll, we'll pick up on those next time. Uh, I'm recording this one today on GarageBand, and in, in the past you've been recording on Skype. So I don't know if uh, it doesn't tell me how long this episode's been, but uh, it's probably about 45 minutes. So we'll cap it at that today. Until next time on March of History. <laughs>